Hello, Rich Bowlers here, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Dad Mindset Show. Today, I chat with Mark Fennell. Mark is an award-winning journalist, broadcaster, and author. He's known for hosting SBS's The Feed and his one-on-one interviews with newsmakers such as Al Gore and Tom Cruise. In this conversation, we discuss the upcoming TV series, The School That Tried to End Racism, hosted by Mark, which is a groundbreaking pilot program designed to provide school children with the tools to identify racial bias and make positive change. It's a really inspiring show, and if it works the way I hope it will, it could make a big difference in not only how our children's generation view racism, but also provide us as parents a great vehicle to discuss this complex topic with our kids. I hope you enjoy this chat with Mark. Mark Fennell, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's oh. nice to be uh, in, even though we're like separated right now, it's nice to actually be talking about this stuff. Oh, it so is. Now, Mark, you're an award-winning journalist, a broadcaster and author. The amount of really great projects that you've worked on is truly staggering, how the hell do you balance it with bringing up two kids and running a family? Uh, poorly is the short answer to that question. Um, I don't sleep a lot. Um, you know, it's first, I think it's important to note that, that, like, I'm not doing, like, it's not a thing I do in isolation. Like, the only reason I can be here in this room right now talking to you is because right now, downstairs, my very long suffering wife is distracting two small children who are, you know, all four of us are under lockdown right now. And, you know, ordinarily, even if we weren't in lockdown, that would only be possible because either my, you know, the school or my mother-in-law would be looking after them. So, you know, there, it's important to understand that I think that the only reason, you know, my wife or I can have, and she's, you know, she's a brilliant ABC journalist in her own right. The only way we can have these careers is because there is a team around it. And, you know, if you tried to do this interview with me on like, uh, Thursday or a Friday, I'd be like, no, nah, can't do it because I'm the one doing, you know, running interference and uh, attempting to run the school of dad, which is not going well, by the way. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think, you know, when it's, it's certainly lovely that people ask that question and I do appreciate it, but I think it's always worth pointing out that it's only doable because of the other people that step in when, you know, you know, and I think there's, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's a bit of teamwork that's involved. And it's also worth pointing out that that teamwork is probably unfairly um, spread um, along gender lines. And so that's certainly something that I think we need to be addressed as well. So it's a very long-winded way of saying uh, it takes a village. Yeah. And how good <laughs> it is it? How good is it having that supporting network as well around you? We're very, very lucky. And I'm really, really mindful of the fact that not everyone has that. You know, we um, even like just the you know the word privilege gets chucked around a lot and I think it's a bit of a loaded term but you know we're very um privileged to be able to even just be able to put the kids on one side of the house and, and not hear them yeah that's something that is like certainly like we moved house recently and that that was not a thing I could have done <laughs> this conversation is not a thing I could have done last year so I you know we're very like yeah we are very lucky to be able to do it and I'm mindful of the fact that whenever it kind of comes up it's important to kind of point in the direction of all the other people that are doing things in order to allow me to have even something simple like this conversation, which is probably a bit boring, but it's important to me that, that people understand that it's like, it's not this like superhuman thing that you do by yourself. Cause that's just like, not like that's fantasy. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't <laughs> exist. Does it? No, no, I, I totally appreciate that. And, and to that end as well, like what would you say is your partner's superpower? Ha. <laughs> She is the most organized 
person. But I think she thinks it's not about organisation as in like being able to like organise your life. It's like she has this ability to hold so many ideas in her head at once and I can't. I live on to-do lists. So I like I live on to-do lists and calendars. And if I can't order, write down every thought that has occurred to me, it goes because I have no long, mid or short-term memory left. <laughs> and so anybody who can retain more than three thoughts at once to me is like, a god or goddess <laughs> because I'm useless at it. So I think it's that and, um, you know, her recall is, is, is remarkable. And parenting is, there's no actual, I mean, there are handbooks, but nothing specifically specifically can arm you with what your particular kids are going to be like at any one particular moment. And every step of it I did have, we had kids quite young, so um, relatively, so I was in my 20s still, which is, I'm realising now, not quite common. A lot of my friends are having them now in their early 30s and so, um, having babies in early 30s. And I was really acutely aware when we started out that we really didn't have a lot of people our age who had kids that we could talk to and go, hey, is this thing normal? Um, and so I felt, you know, I think both of us have felt kind of like we're sort of muddling through. It's a lot easier now because you, you accrue, you sort of accrue people with the kids that you're in, your same age and you can build a community around it. But in those early days, you're like, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> Luckily, we had family. Like my mother-in-law is like the greatest human being on the planet. Um, but, yeah, I, I do sort of feel like it's been a lot of muddling. And, it, I mean, and to be honest, even now, like homeschooling, oh, my God, is the definition of muddling in this house right now. <laughs> Neither of us feel like we're doing a very good job. Uh, but that doesn't mean you don't try, but it just means like it's hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally, Morgan. Uh, only to that this morning, my wife and I were talking about, like she's studying early years learning at the moment because she's trained to be mm. a kinder teacher. And she was reflecting on the fact that, oh, my gosh, we're learning just how important the early years are. Like, so it's almost like we should flip the education system because it's so important to build that emotional resilience, you know, the emotional regulation, all that sort of stuff. And then we're looking at each other going, did we miss the boat with our kids? Because we didn't do oh, any of that stuff. <laughs> I, I constantly worry about that. Like, and I don't really let it show, but I like constantly I'm like, did we, did we, have we already messed you up? They yeah, already messed yeah, up yeah, yeah. Is there no going back from this? Um, and I think I just have to sort of, you know, and I think every parent sort of has that moment. But I also just think I'm reminded of something in old Boston. I used to work for Andrew Denton many years ago and he had this great saying, which is like, uh, careers are long, life is short. So you'll get lots of opportunities to do things in your careers, but the life itself is quite short. And I always like when it comes back to kind of balancing work, and family. Even though I love work and I'm, I'm a workaholic, I work a lot, I have to kind of remind myself to varying levels of success that, you know, there's going to be lots of opportunities to do work things. You don't have to do it all at once, but the, the life part, you have no control over. You have no control over the timescale of that. And it's important to actually try and be present. I say this with the knowledge that I fail, like massively fail, but it's important to try and be present in those moments with, with kids. And, uh, my kids love to point out all the times that I'm not paying attention to something <laughs> yeah. in my phone. Yeah. Um, I, I got so that this I, morning from Will. <laughs> it's like, hey, oh, you said no screen time for us and that you're looking at your phone. I was like, oh, has I that? have no leg to stand on yeah. here. There's no leg to stand on. You're yeah. done. And, they, yeah, they're at that age where they're just old enough to, like, uh, like nail hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. They <laughs> and, can smell and, in a mile off. Oh, they, they yeah. They, they're really... 
they're dangerous. I don't know why we did it. I don't know why we did it. It was a terrible mistake. Now, you've said uh, mother-in-laws are amazing, and I'll give a big shout out to that as well. But um, what about your mum? Because one of my favorite projects of yours was It Burns, like a fantastic, if anyone's not listened to this yet, get on to Mark's It Burns podcast series. It's epic. But um, like your mum plays a, ca- a cameo role in that, doesn't she? Like Shirley, she sounds like an absolute legend. Like, what have you learned? So, what have you learned from her about parenting? Yeah, so it's funny. Like that's the first time. So it burns was a, a series I did for, for Audible about the race to breed the world's hottest chili. And my mum and I, um, as kids, we used to do chili offs. My mum's Indian Singaporean, and uh, we you can find it on Audible. But the, we started with me and mum having a chili off, and and mum mum's great because she's a bit. I say this with love. She's a bit flaky, like, and her memory of how things from childhood played out in my memory often like very wildly. But I think, you know, my mum came to Australia in the 1980s to be a teacher. She was a school teacher. And she encountered a country that was, I think, you know, she, at the time she was like, she would just muddle through. But I think she found it a pretty hostile place for a tiny brown lady who wanted to teach English and be told that, hey, you can't teach English because you have an accent. And so I think those things, you know, without me realising it, those stuff, that stuff really stayed with me growing up. And, you know, she's mad, but she's my mad. And so she's, um, I think she's taught me a lot about resilience. You know, like I don't, um, our childhood was pretty sort of tumultuous, lots of different schools and things like that. Not as tumultuous as, as, as others, but I do feel like I've learned a lot about just like putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, try and, and just keep moving with mum, which I think is sort of how I operate with most things now, even though my one foot in front of the other is just like actually adding another thing to the to-do list. You just keep moving forward. And I, and I definitely inherited my work ethic from both, you know, from my parents in that regard. Like I remember being like just doing lists of things I wanted to do. And I, I think that does, I can track that back definitely to mum for sure. Yeah. And what about your dad, Mark? Dad is... um. Dad was a photographer, so uh, he's he's still around. He's not a photographer anymore. Um, and look, I there's no, I would not be doing anything that I do now in terms of like making film and TV stuff if it weren't for hanging around on dad sets, you know. And and you know, to his credit, you know, he would always he I think he because he was really good at fostering that stuff. You know, he did this. He was very good at kind of identifying when I had an interest and just chucking a lot of energy at it, like possibly too much energy. But, um, but like, you know, when I was in year five, I decided I wanted to make a movie and he was there with, um, you know, like ideas for, you know, backdrops and things like that. You know what I mean? Like it was, I think that's something that I carry through with my kids now, which is so my son, I said this the other, I've never met anybody with a more innate need to make things. You know, we, we muddle our way through homeschool in the morning and it's like pulling teeth. But then after that, he immediately goes off and he's like, he's either building a pond, we build a home gym together, he's designing a new school in the sky. He's He needs a project like, and he needs to have his fingers dirty while he does it. Yeah. And I've worked out that, you know, we're not going to give up on homeschooling, obviously, but I realised the much more valuable thing we can do in this period that we're in, in, in Sydney at the moment anyway, is make sure that whatever random and it is oh my god Richard so random whatever <laughs> random project he's investing in make sure that he knows that we back him um and look it's hard you know when like at the moment he's been transforming all of our spoons into artworks and I'm just like dude we what am I going to cook with you keep taking my spoons <laughs> and decorating them 
but it's like, but at the same time, he's brilliant. You know, he does a wonderful job with it. So it's like, I think that's, you know, to give my dad credit, that's something he was always very good at, which is like, find and like work out what it is that 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 the kids love and invest in. And he, you know, my brother's a musician, and he did the same thing for for my brother as well. And I think that's, you know, that's one thing that I do try to carry through uh, as much as possible. Yeah. Now, what do you think your kids would actually say you do for a living if someone was to ask them? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, famously, um, Daddy Wears Makeup for a Living was quite popular for a while. <laughs> um, which when I, I used to host the feed on SBS every night. We do it weekly now, but we, it used to be nightly. And when I was doing it nightly, that is accurate. Like yeah. I wore more makeup than anyone else in this house because I was in studio every night. Um, but I think they've, I think actually what's been interesting about working from home is that they have really, um, they've now, because we've moved so much of the production work I do where I'm doing voiceovers and I'm writing scripts and they can watch me edit, um, you know, radio or TV. They kind of, they have a fr- bit of a front seat view. I think they've actually, they really have a clear understanding. Mummy and daddy, because Babylon works in radio, mummy and daddy make TV and radio. And um, I think they get that. But what is interesting is that they get to partake in it. So I've got a little sound desk over here and um, they call it the colour desk because it's got <laughs> lots of um, like light. It's one of those Roadcaster Pro desks, so it's got lots of lights on it and, and whatnot. And uh, they sit there and they put their headphones on and they tell they tell each other stories and we record them and they, I load it up with sound effects and they, they do the sound. And I put some like production music in there so they can put like fairy tale music underneath it. And it's their favourite thing, you know. It's it's well, it's one of their favourite things. I don't know their actual favourite thing. Their actual favourite thing is definitely the iPad. But um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, note, I, I don't even rank in the top five. It'll be like TV, iPad, the desk, paint, iPad Oscar again, pen, yeah, iPad again because we've got two, uh, and then somewhere <laughs> around the seven or eight mark would be Mummy and Daddy. Um, so we're very <laughs> low on the list of uh, priorities. But I do think um, as they get have gotten older. I find myself looking for, you know, the, the Venn diagram of their interests and my interests and the things that sit in that space that we can invest in. Because I also think, you know, if if the things your kids are massively interested in, you find utterly boring, which is just the reality, it's hard. It's a slog. So anything you can do, and this is very self-serving, anything you can do to invest in uh, joint interests, yeah, great. Do that. I love <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, that idea of the Venn diagram. That's great because yeah. it is. It's like finding that sweet spot between the two. Yeah, he's obsessed with like at the moment we've got a sewing machine, so he's been doing a lot of like um, unwanted alterations to clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, like Madeline's quite good at that sort of stuff. And I was like, I don't want to partake in this particular activity. I feel like my clothes will not survive this activity. Yeah. Much like our spoons have not survived. <laughs> we had to do like an emergency order of, of like ladles because the opinion. So I think like anything you can do to find joint space is worthwhile. Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. Uh, and what I is think, it? Interestingly, Max has sat here and uh, my son, uh, he has sat here and watched all of the school that tried to end racism. We watched together and he's seven. And it was, I was just watching him watch it. Just so interesting, yeah. Because um, he guts it, like he he gets it, and he's younger than the kids in the show. But the environment is really familiar to him, and the concepts weren't a world away from some stuff he he understood. And it was really interesting to watch watch him watch it, and for him to watch me in it is also very interesting as well. Because he gets what I do, do does for a living, but to kind of see it in context was was really fascinating. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because you know the school that tried to end racism is is why we're here and, and talking today. But it's a 
an incredible show. I actually sat down and watched it with the preview with Annie last night, uh, my eldest daughter. And it was really mm. interesting, the the things that sort of brought up, because it was a similar age group to her classmates. And we were talking about how she thought her class would respond to the 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 way the exercises that you guys did in the program and and it it just i think it's wonderful how it it starts the conversation and i think one of the points that you alluded to is you know we can't solve this problem if we don't talk about it yeah yeah and i think that what you did with your daughter there is is kind of the hope we want families to sit down and watch it together you know i think the word racism is like a grenade you know people don't like to talk about it because you know you've kind of got three broad groups you've got people that um, have either never experienced racism and for whom they're like, okay, it's not that big a deal, or people who, you know, are aware that it exists but are terrified of talking about it lest they say the wrong thing. And then you've got people that have directly experienced it and they're worried if they bring it up, they'll either be told that they're being too sensitive or, you know, like it gets minimised. And so for all of these range of reasons, um, it's just very hard for adults to talk about. I think what the series sort of proves is that um, it is a solvable problem. The trick is to break it down. You break it down into its attendant elements, you know, and it's like where prejudices and stereotypes form, they turn into um, where sort of where um, where stereotypes and biases form, they grow into prejudices and then onto full-blown racism. And if you break it down, it's solvable. And I think, you know, there's certainly in the series, we do lots of fun stuff with the kids to kind of bring those ideas to life, but we also do, we have some really uncomfortable conversations. And I think the trick with uncomfortable conversations, and this applies to both kids and adults, is you can have uncomfortable conversations provided the kids are in a space where they feel safe and secure and they will be understood. And I think that's the really important part of the series. It's like certainly when you talk about race, there are uncomfortable conversations, but kids do so. And and I should also say their parents, the teachers are all enthusiastically involved in this process as well. It's important that the kids feel like they can have, be honest about what they're really feeling and thinking and do it safely. I think that's the important thing. And so, I, look, I think, um, you know, it's been a really interesting experience because the kids are, they're sort of 11 and 12 and there's so much more emotional articulation in that class than I think I was expecting. My kids are a bit younger, so I didn't quite know what to expect. But they were so, and it wasn't like these kids were just like the the opportunity class kids who were like academically sky high. It was a big mix economically, ethnically, um, in terms of academics. And yet still the level of emotional intelligence in the room was really high. And, you know, people will say, hey, why are you talking about race with 11, 12-year-olds? And I'm just like, you know what? Most of those kids had some had either direct experiences of it, either blatant and subtle. I know personally growing up that I had experienced both subtle and racism before I turned 11 or 12. So it's already part of their life. Anyone that says otherwise is just like that has not dealt with kids. And the other thing with it is that we know from the education research that these ideas around race and prejudices, they bed in in adolescence. So if we can give kids a, a toolkit, and that's really all that the series is, about giving them a toolkit to talk about these ideas and break them down before they enter high school so that when they encounter either, you know, racist ideas or whatever it is, they know how to talk about it. It's not about telling people how to think. It's about teaching pe- teaching people, giving people a toolkit to how to break down ideas. That's all it is. It's not radical. It's not... It's not, um, you know, particularly, it's not even that adventurous. It's just a toolkit for how to talk about ideas. And, the, you know, there's this moment that is in, I think, um, it's like the very beginning of the series. It's actually a moment taken from the end where I sort of, we're doing this big assembly with the kids and I kind of break down 
tears. Very embarrassing. I sort of break down in tears. And I, it took me ages after filming it to realise why. Because I'm not, like, I have no soul, Richard. I'm not a person <laughs> prone to cry. Um, <laughs> it took me forever to work out why it got to me so much. And I realised afterwards as I was looking at this primary school assembly hall, like ones exactly like the ones I went to. And I realized like, if I had had been through a class like this, where we could talk openly about the things that make us different and the things that make us the same. And more importantly, if the kids around me had the same framework with which to talk about it, there's so much awful traumatizing stuff that I could have avoided. And, and, and mi- literally millions of other kids around Australia could have avoided if we had a framework to talk about this stuff. And look, let's be honest, school, it's kind of traumatising for everybody for different reasons and you can't solve all of it. But the, pa- the fact that these kids now could collectively navigate, you know, really difficult conversations about race and feeling like you do and you don't belong, oh, my God. <laughs> like if that had existed when I was in school, I feel like, there's so much awful shit, pardon the French, that could have been avoided. Yeah. And I think that's true for lots of people. And I, and I think it's not just about race. I think talking about what makes us the same and what makes us different, knowing how to do that in a way that makes people feel safe and comfortable to share, that the dividends for that in a whole range of other ways, it, it, it's like it'd be mountains of, mountains of, of, um, of positive impact. Yeah, I think. absolutely. And, and I sort of see this almost as a, it, it just feels like the the very sort of tip of the iceberg. It, it's really yeah. exciting to watch because it had such an effect on the kids and teachers, everyone involved. And I think it is, it creates that shared language. Everyone can communicate with that same um, mode. And, and it yeah. sort of enables, I, I was actually thinking like, oh, wow, it, it sort of gives you better language to deal with or better approaches to deal with the situations that do come up, you know, because shared language is such a great phrase. Oh, actually, yeah, that's a perfect way of, of framing. Yeah, because I think Cause that's I think the I, big problem I suffered with. Is like you see something, it's like, do you call it out? And to call it out is a very aggressive sort of. It, it, it can is. be and, and and dangerous in some situations, but to actually have a much more, um, I don't want to say the word gracious, but the, certainly some of the language was very gracious in its approach to people and, and understanding where they're coming from and actually just uh, holding place for them to talk things through. I think it's important, like like lots of people with a Twitter account, I um, I have definitely called things out in the past. And so it's a really difficult activity because I think you do get, when you are angry about seeing something that's obviously racist there is a weird dopamine hit from calling it out and it's and there is value in calling things out and i and i don't want this to be interpreted as as discouraging or talking down the calling of things out because i think it serves a really vital purpose but it the 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 reason i wanted to do this is because it sort of shows you the next step yeah you know i mean like it's one thing to point out the problem and i think that's important and i don't want that to be misunderstood but this was a project that actually allowed you to see how we could solve it in a very holistic way. You can see a I future, can't you? You can actually see yeah. this is actually going to work because if we can get all the schools using the same vernacular, this is going to be incredible. And, and you know, the, the leaders of the future are going to have this much better way to communicate through these and navigate through these, these scenarios yeah. and situations. And, and it's not even like it's interesting the word vernacular because it's like it's – I think there's a sense out there at the moment that people – feel like their language is being policed and, and and therefore they're afraid to talk. And I understand 
how that's all sort of played out. But I think it's it's sort of what the value of seeing not just having it explained to you in a seminar or, or you know, in, a, in an Instagram post, the value of actually seeing it in action with the kids, I think deepens your understanding behind, like, I guess, like the philosophy behind it. And it, the whole thing is it's very integrated. Like it's not, yeah. you know, you've got a really ethnically diverse group of kids. There's white kids, there's First Nations kids, there's kids from all over the world. It's not, no one's being demonised. It's about giving people a, uh, a, a shared language, to use your, your word, to talk about, again, what makes us different and and where's the fairness within that. You know, I always come back to this idea that, you know, in the National Anthem, we say advance Australia fair. So we have collectively as a nation decided that fairness should be part of the DNA of the nation. So if that's true and we've decided that, we now know that there's a bunch of ways in which Australia is not fair, You often cut along, you know, ethnic and gender lines. So let's ask ourselves the question, if this program, and, you know, people will see when they get to the end and they'll see the results, if this program can move us closer to being that fair nation that we promise ourselves in the national anthem, we should seriously look at it. You know, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not certainly, I'm a, I'm a journalist, I'm not here to dictate what we do and don't bring into schools. There are people far more educated than me. But I do think it's worth parents and teachers and education departments looking at it and seriously asking the question, if we've decided that Australia is a place that we want to be fair, if this program is going to move us to being a fairer nation, and if it is going to move us close to being a fairer nation, is it worth rolling out aspects of, this program in, in schools and 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 I, I issue that question to parents and teachers and, and education departments that I that I hope they take and I hope they look at it seriously and evaluate it on their own merits because that's not my job because that's that's what I took away from it it's like well we say we're fair we know we're not in many ways can we do better that's yeah. it can we do better totally. <laughs> you know and, and 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 bring everyone along for the ride as opposed to like demonizing or calling out you know like which has its has its place but is there a better way of doing this from the ground up and i think that's why it felt like the sort of thing that i did definitely want to be a part of because it felt constructive and inclusive and i think those things matter you know absolutely and it's exciting to watch because you can tell that there is that ability for this thing to flow on and and to flourish and actually really do what you know, the the team have intended it to do. And, and I love the part about how it, it engages the kids. They actually experience what it's like. So they're not just yeah. talking about it in class. They're like, oh, hang on, this isn't fair. You know, in some of the <laughs> exercises, this is, this is rubbish. I hate this. You yeah. know, this is so unfair. And once they understand it, then take that through into their future careers and everything. Oh, it's just wonderful. I, I love it. But, I'm yeah, a I big fan even of with that. Even with that, it's like also like modeling what is unfair, but then also immediately afterwards modeling what is fair. So, you know, we do this thing where we get, you ask kids questions about, uh, we arrange them on a, on a track and we ask them questions about that relate to um, areas of ethnicity that we do, uh, we do know statistically place people at more or less of an advantage, right? And as we ask them questions, they move up and down the track and that's their starting point for this race. Now they can you can be at the back and still be the fastest, hardest working person on the planet and win. Like that is still an option that is available to you. But you have to work X amounts, you know, X amount harder to get there. And we know that that, you know, that starting position in life is not just about race, it's about money, it's about gender, it's about a bunch of things. But it illustrates this idea that that their starting position for people at life is often not fair in this country. And once they, you know, that kids will kind of look around at each other, realize it's unfair and they acknowledge it, that's one thing. 
The next thing is to get them both, get them all to do the race again on the right starting line where it is fair. Because that's the goal. It's not just about, you know, yeah. this isn't an exercise in dividing kids. It's an exercise in going, well, how do we move us to a place where it, it can be fair? You know, even things like, you know, the affinity groups where we get kids um, we get the class to kind of decide which group do you feel like you identify more and do you feel like you identify more as a, as a, as a white kid or do you feel like you identify more as a, a kid of colour? And the, and the really important part, and I think often quite misunderstood part of that process, is they go off in their groups, they get confident talking about how they're feeling about their position and the most important thing is that they come together and share as a group. They come back together as a group to communicate how they're feeling. And they can change their mind about what group they feel like they belong. And, indeed, that happens. A few, a few kids change their minds. Um, and it's entirely up to them to decide where they feel like they belong. And it throws up these really important issues of, like, identity. Because if you'd asked me to do that when I was 11 or 12, I would instantly run to the white group because that's the group I wanted to be in. Yeah. Now, if you ask me now, it's probably a bit different. Because race is not just about the colour of your skin, it's also about your identity and where you feel like you belong. Yeah. And I think that process with the kids is 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 really it's I think it's important to understand it in its in, in its entirety. I think it's often been mischaracterized quite heavily. And it's actually about getting confident around people who have a shared experience with you and then bringing that experience back to the group so we can share together and learn from each other all ends of that spectrum. And I think that's really important to understand it in its in its full picture because I think there's a tendency of people to kind of mischaracterise it as something that it's it's most definitely not. Yeah, and I think the show did that in a wonderful way. I mean, it just talked through the complexity of identity and got the kids to really question, oh, hang on a minute, I thought it was cut and dry over here, but now you've added this other layer in and all of a sudden I don't know where I sit. Like, yeah, I'm feeling yeah. kind of all these feelings going on and, yeah, yeah good good sort of processes to to go through i think um you know the the more that we can get the word out around this and you know get more schools involved the better i i just want to take my hat off to you mark it's just a fantastic job you and the team have done putting it together you know the the school that tried to end racism it's what premiering on 21st of september 8 30 abc tv and abc iview Brilliant work. It's so good, Mark. And I just want to say, I know you've got a a, a full schedule, so I've got to let you go. <laughs> but um, I just want to say thanks ever so much for jumping on the show and, and sharing your thoughts with us as well. The pleasure is entirely mine. Thanks so much for the chat. I really appreciate it. Thanks ever so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark as much as I did. If you're based in Australia, make sure to check out The School That Tried to End Racism on ABC TV and iView, which will be launching on September 21st at 8.30. Also, if you'd like to reach out to Mark, I'll put some links in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. Well, that's all from me. I hope you stay safe and sane. And until next time, enjoy your caffeinated beverage. Thank you.